0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is George Robbins and this is episode 64 for the second quarter of February 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is quantum nonsense. Now, There is no specific claim to describe for this episode. Quantum mechanics, simply the term itself and many of its major principles, are fundamentally abused daily, if not hourly, if not minutely, by New Agers, pseudoscientists, and just in general by people saying some radical advancement in the field is a quantum leap. One generally need only to say the name Deepak Chopra, and many will instantly know what I'm talking about. The purpose of this episode is to give an overview of quantum mechanics itself, and then five of its primary principles. Well, actually four, since one is more of a technicality. The hope is that with these explanations, you'll be able to hone your BS detectors, trademarked, against quantum nonsense when you hear it. Then I'm going to go through a few examples perpetrated by Andy Basiago. More on him when I get there. Then I'll wrap it up with an interesting question of whether, because of quantum mechanics and relativity, Newtonian mechanics, aka classical mechanics, is dead. Now, without going through the math and a lot of explanation that's really not the focus of this episode, quantum mechanics is basically the physics of the very, very small. We're talking about what happens on atomic scales, what happens with electrons, which are subatomic particles, and the particles that make up protons and neutrons called quarks, and also the properties of light. Sometimes we can talk about particles as large as a few atoms. So molecules have quantum mechanical properties. But in general, anything larger, and the weirdness due to quantum mechanics that I'm going to describe, doesn't really affect it. In other words, we are not talking about time, space-time, nor any object on the macroscopic level, where macroscopic in this context means anything about the size of a cell or larger, in other words, collections of millions of atoms. So we're not talking about the brain and human consciousness here. Quantum mechanics, though, is weird. In fact, it almost fits the very definition of weird, since many of the observations at atomic scales defies our concept of how objects quote-unquote should act. Why? It's because we don't experience it every day at our scales. The very fact that quantum mechanics seems weird means that it really doesn't affect most of what we perceive during our daily lives. I think this is why a lot of purveyors of modern pseudoscience rely on an appeal to quantum mechanics to describe how their ideas work. Since most people don't understand quantum mechanics beyond the things get weird part, People are more willing to accept a quantum-mechanics-says-this-can-happen claim and just trust it. But you can't use quantum mechanics to argue that psychic powers work, nor that time-travelers possible, nor that information, which also has a very specific definition, can be transmitted instantaneously. In physics, the term quantum does not mean magic, nor fill-in-the-blank with something. It has a very specific definition. It's a discrete quantity, usually of energy. In fact, the whole field of quantum mechanics is based around the idea that energy cannot come in a pure spectrum of intervals, or lack of intervals, but it can only happen in discrete, albeit very small, packets. A good example is the beginning of the classic music piece Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. The trill, the clarinet plays a glissando, what sounds like a continuous note that varies over nearly two octaves of pitch. If you were to analyze a good recording of a good clarinetist, you would be hard-pressed to find discrete individual notes. It would seem like a continuous range. That's how energy was thought of before quantum mechanics. What forms the foundational idea of quantum mechanics is that if you go small enough, If our recording were good enough, and the analysis software were good enough, you would see that the appearance of a continuous range was actually made up of individual, discrete steps. Each step is an individual quantum, or you could say that the note, at a very small scale, was quantized, or quantized. Another way to think about this is what my second semester of quantum mechanics professor said in college. Grades in his class were quantized. We either got an A or an F. Nothing in between. There was no range. This was a very novel idea a hundred years ago, and it still surprises many people today. But that's what quantum means. No more and no less. Putting the word quantum in front of another word does not make that other word suddenly mean something different. In fact, as it is normally applied these days, it makes the other word fairly meaningless, as we'll talk about in maybe 15 minutes. One such example is the term quantum leap. I swear that every time I hear or see some commercial that says their product represents a quantum leap in technology, I throw up a little bit in my mouth. After rinsing and brushing thrice, I explain my absence to my companions. The term quantum leap describes something very specific, when an electron jumps from one energy state to another without passing through any energy state between, and that's because the two energy states are quantized. Classically, this is represented simply by moving from one energy or electron shell to another, one orbital to another. In doing so, it either releases or absorbs a packet of energy, depending on if it's moving to a lower or higher energy state. That's it. It's a very, very, very tiny movement within the structure of an atom. Energy states are quantized, and so it moves from one energy state to another without being able to pass through anything between them. Kind of like if you were to roll up or down a ramp as opposed to walk up or down stairs. The electrons walk up and down stairs. Incidentally, that also means that the television show Quantum Leap, starring the actor that killed Star Trek, was somewhat correct in its use of the term since the main character jumped from one point in time and space to another without passing through any of the intermediate time and space. As you may be figuring out by this point, quantum mechanics has a very specific set of rules and governing equations that have been verified to be correct within measurement capabilities, hence why it's a theory in the scientific sense. And because quantum mechanics does not make sense to many people in our everyday world, and the math is hard, physics have been coming up with analogies that are used to describe some of the consequences of the field. An example is that one of the consequences of quantum mechanics is that a particle's state will not be known until it is observed. I remind you that in this field, particle and observed have very specific definitions and cannot be extrapolated to, for example, person calling on the telephone and picking up the telephone to explain telephone telepathy, Dean Radin. In fact, the consequences of this had three different interpretations in the early days of the field, where the Copenhagen interpretation was that the particle actually exists in all states until it is observed. This turns out to be the actual way it works, experimentally determined a few decades ago. But in the early days, there were two competing ideas. One being that it exists in a particular state, we just don't know what it is until it's measured. This is where the famous Einstein quote comes from. God doesn't play dice with the universe. As far as we can tell, Einstein was wrong in this case. This gets to the principle known as the observer effect in name. Note that this is the observer effect in physics, not the observer effect in psychology nor parapsychology. The basic concept is that you really can't measure something without affecting it. In our everyday world, not in a quantum mechanical sense, I experienced this last Wednesday when pumping up my bike tires. When putting the pump nozzle onto the air intake thingy, sorry, this is not one of the areas of my technical knowledge, some air, was let out. My bike pump also has a pressure gauge, and so the act of trying to use that gauge to take a reading on the pressure of the air in the tire changed the amount of air that's actually there. The reason that this is not a great analogy for quantum mechanics is that you know what the result will be in this instance. The pressure, when you measure it, will be lower than what it was before because of the air escaping. The observer effect has a very specific meaning in quantum mechanics. When you get small enough, and again we're talking here on the scales of atoms and smaller, you don't describe objects as having specific properties. In fact, the term object itself doesn't even really apply. You have what's called a wave function, which describes the state of the system as a set of several possible states. You don't know what the actual state may be. When you do the measurement, though, you do what's called collapsing or collapse the wave function, meaning that all of those different possibilities are now rejected except for the one that you measured. So the act of observing the system means that you've changed it from having all of those different possible values to the one that you observed. It's like, say, a friend puts a bunch of marbles, or puts one marble. We'll go with that. Your friend puts one marble into a box, You don't know what it is. Your friend doesn't know what it is. And the marble could be a specific color. In a quantum mechanical sense, if this were a quantum mechanical system, that ball would actually be every color. Then when you reached your hand in and took the ball and saw what color it was, it became that color. You collapsed the wave function of possibilities to become that color. This again gets into sort of the interpretation of quantum mechanics. Was it really all of those different colors and then your act of picking it up and looking at it, measuring it, forced it to be one of those colors? Or was it one of those colors, you know, the color that you saw originally and you just didn't know? Or when you picked up the ball and saw that it was a color, did you see it was a color and then in alternate universe you saw it as a different color? and then an alternate universe, you saw it as a different color, and so on and so forth. That interpretation is the multi-worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, and was featured in a Star Trek series that did not kill the franchise. Yet another way to think of this is the idea of Schrodinger's cat, where Schrodinger is effectively the founder of quantum mechanics, so we use his cat. I'm not actually sure if he had a cat or not, but it's called Schrodinger's cat for this thought experiment. The idea is that a cat is placed in a sealed box from which no information can escape until the seal is broken. A piece of radioactive material is placed in there that will slowly release a poison that will kill the cat. The release of that radioactive material is a purely quantum mechanical process, and that means that it's random with time. And so when the box is sealed, the cat could either be alive, or dead, depending upon how much radioactive material has been released and how much poison the cat has soaked up, I suppose. When you actually open the box and look, then you know that the cat is alive or dead. But until you make that measurement, that cat can be thought of as both alive and dead at the same time. It's weird, I I realize this, but that's how quantum mechanics works. But with all of that said, the observer effect does not mean that you have to have a human consciousness to make something real. New Agers constantly use this, so I'll talk more about it later. For the fifth piece of background, before we get to those juicy, succulent, coast-to-coast AM clips that you just want to sink your teeth into, I need to talk about one final concept with a very specific definition, and a mathematical one at that. Delta x times delta p is greater than or equal to h-bar over 2. What this means in words is that the change in position multiplied by the change in momentum must be greater than or equal to half of h-bar, where h-bar is h divided by 2 pi, where h is Planck's constant, which is a very, 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 very small number. Now, unless you're a physicist or have really studied the field, you are probably thinking some combination of, huh? or, what the heck does that mean? In plain English, this is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is not the same as the observer effect. In even plainer English, the consequences of this is that when we measure a particle's position or momentum, the more precise that we measure one value, the less precise that we can know the other. This isn't because of our measuring equipment, rather it seems to be a general rule of the universe, that the particle's other quantity really, literally, becomes less defined and knowable the more that we know about the other quantity. For anyone who knows about the guy, it seems quite apropos when talking about something being not defined and knowable to get into my first uh, quote-unquote guest for this episode, Andy Basiago. He's a lawyer and someone who is either an incredibly good storyteller or someone who needs to be put in a padded room, although he's fairly high-functioning. I'm not going to go through this necessarily as an ad hominem, rather I'm going to give it to you as context for the person, and perhaps to add a little bit of humor as well. Bastiago first came onto my radar back in 2009, when a year earlier he went public demanding that National Geographic publish his study, where he blew up images from the Mars rovers to about 5,000% size and claimed to have found life forms within the pixelation artifacts. I later followed this up when he went on Coast to Coast AM back in November 2010, when he claimed, well, this is how Rational Wiki puts it. After friends and family apparently failed to seek a diagnosis for Basiago, he suddenly remembered in 2010 that he had been a child participant in a top-secret DARPA program experimenting with time travel and teleportation in the early 1970s. These technologies were invented, of course, by that old conspiracy theorist dead horse, Nikola Tesla. End quote. It's from this show that four clips will be taken and talked about momentarily. He also claimed that he went to Mars and met a young boy named Barry Satoro, who told him that he would become President of the United States. And... Andy Bashiago says that he, himself, will be running and will win the U.S. presidency in 2016. The reason that I'm going to use quotes from Bashiago for this episode on quantum nonsense is that he's a good example of a pseudoscientist who uses the terms in a would-be physics context, as opposed to a bunch of stuff from, say, Deepak Chopra. These first two clips are examples of using the term quantum itself.
1: In fact, I spent four phantom summers in New Mexico, the summers of 1970, 71, 73, accessed from the fall of 71, and the summer of 1972, living in New Mexico with my father. So there was an extensive cover-up of our presence in New Mexico uh, in this sort of quantum-displaced kind of way. In fact, that was the only time that I was involved in actual wormholing, where as I was moving through the quantum plenum, uh, I was moving through a, a, a series of, of arching uh, tunnels that were sort of chaotic as I moved uh, onto my destination.
0: Those were two examples that are very common in the New Age world. Stick the word quantum in something and it makes it sound science After all, sounding science is good enough for Jesse Ventura to believe you, although that was episode 57. Unfortunately for these folks, this is not true. Sticking the word quantum in front of displacement makes it fairly meaningless. If anything, it could be the same as a quantum leap, a very, very, very tiny movement, and not something that has anything to do with an extensive cover-up. In the other quote, sticking the word quantum in front of the word tunnel also does not make it more meaningful. If you had to link it to something sciency, then again, it would have to do with movements inside of atoms, where electrons could tunnel their way from one state to another, again without passing between the intervening energy states. It doesn't have to do with wormholes that he could walk through.
1: So the very act of sending the same child or a different child to the same quote-unquote event was, I guess, as a result of the... Heisenberg uncertainty principle changing that event a little bit.
0: Now that you know what the Heisenberg uncertainty principle actually is, that you can't know both the position and momentum of a particle to arbitrarily high precision, you can see that this idea, or the idea, of time travel paradoxes has absolutely nothing to do with it. This is an appeal to a scientific term and equation that has zero, bearing on the actual claim. This shows, A, Bashiago's complete lack of understanding of quantum mechanics, and, B, fairly good evidence, if you didn't have it already, that his claims are made up.
1: When you go back and, and visit yourself in the past, you're, you're somebody from from the future visiting your alpha timeline, but mm-hmm. then if you interfere with your destiny at that moment, um. Basically, uh, Schrodinger's cat takes over and a new timeline branches off that's affected by your visit, but then you return to the future that you left.
0: I would absolutely love to stick Schrodinger's cat after it's been trapped in a box with poison on Basiago after Basiago says something like this. That is, assuming, of course, that the cat survived its ordeal within the box. This is very much like the previous example where Baciago made a conjecture from his story and then inserted a thought exercise from quantum mechanics to try to make it sound more believable when, in actuality, the insertion shows once again that he has no idea of what he's actually talking about. Schrodinger's cat, quote-unquote, taking over to make something into a branching timeline is meaningless and a non-sequitur. Moving away from Balciago and to a different radio program, the following is a clip from Whitley Strieber's Dreamland show, which is another show that was started by Art Bell. And for this particular episode from August 4th, 2011, it was hosted by his wife, Anne. I know a tiny bit about quantum physics. Uh, I have a layman's understanding of it, which we're all going to have to have eventually because uh, the type of science most of us were taught in school, Newtonian, is not uh, relevant really anymore. It's not the way the world works. And my understanding is that there had to be an observer at the Big Bang, for the Big Bang to have occurred, because uh, nothing happens unless it is observed, and so therefore that
1: is a proof for God. Is that kind of crazy, or what do you think?
0: Given the type of show that Dreamland is, you can probably guess what her guest responded with. If she had asked me, I would have told her the opposite thing. But to address the first part, I heard a talk given by the bad astronomer, Dr. Phil Plate back in mid-2011 entitled something along the lines of The Final Epsilon. Epsilon is a Greek letter. In physics and math, epsilon is used to mean a very little bit. For example, I wrote down a recipe that calls for one part butter, four plus epsilon parts peanut butter, eight minus epsilon parts powdered sugar, and four parts semi-sweet chocolate. In other words, it needs a little bit more than four parts peanut butter and a little bit less than eight parts powdered sugar. And people always kind of look at me a little funny when I hand them that recipe. I'm not quite sure why. Dr. Plate's thesis was effectively, in skepticism, what is our final epsilon? In science, we can never prove anything to 100% certainty. We can never disprove anything to 100% certainty. Similarly, in modern scientific skepticism, we can never disprove someone's claim 100%. Despite Every debunked alleged psychic, we can never prove 100% that psychic powers are not possible. Despite showing all of the problems that the lunar ziggurat had, I can never prove 100% that there isn't a ziggurat hiding in a crater on the moon. The discussion during Dr. Plate's talk was, at what point do we say that for all practical purposes we have disproved or proved something? After debunking dozens upon dozens of astrologers and their claims and their methods, even though scientifically I can't say astrology is 100% Taurus, I could say that it's 99.999% bull. And if I'm so close, just .0001% away from an absolute truth with a capital T, am I willing, for all practical purposes, to say that that is my Epsilon, and that I've effectively proven it to be false. Now you may be thinking,
1: Gee, that's fascinating and I love me some good calculus, but what does this have to do with whether Newton is okay or if I have to learn
0: quantum mechanics? I'm glad that you asked. Another point that Phil mentioned in his talk was that the concept of the final epsilon is just as applicable to how we view the world through physics. Newton's law of gravity works in our everyday world, It very, very accurately describes what will happen if I drop a screaming baby who won't stop screaming in the middle of the night in the apartment above me off of a tall building. It very accurately describes the motion of the moon around Earth and through our sky. We use Newton's laws to figure out these things and to figure out how a rocket is going to fly. But Newton's law of gravity is wrong to some extent. Einstein's relativity corrects that very, very small error an error that's really only measurable with incredibly accurate instruments and or when it's around a very massive object. But that is not our everyday world. In gravity, Einstein was Newton's epsilon, and likely, in the future, someone else will be Einstein's epsilon. That's the nature of science. It progresses as we learn more and more and more about the universe around us and of which we are a part. That brings me back to the quote, which is by Ann Strieber, which by now you have hopefully figured out why I took issue with. Yes, quantum mechanics provides a more accurate model of the world. And if you wanted to and had supercomputers many, 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 many orders of magnitude more powerful than today's best, you could describe a common everyday object as an ensemble of wave equations and superposed states. But if you do that, you would find that beyond all meaningful measurements, classical physics comes up with the same answer. A ball is still going to bounce downstairs in the same way under classical mechanics as it would under quantum mechanics. Yes, quantum mechanics is necessary to describe some things in physics, such as the energy spectrum produced by stars, or the photoelectric effect, which is how modern CCDs work, but it is not needed nor used to figure out how to drive a car from home to work, nor why a volcano erupts. Addressing the second part gets back to the observer effect that I touched on earlier in this episode. The answer is that, no, she's not crazy, but she is misinformed. Well, she may be crazy, but I don't know, and in this case, it's just misinformed. But it is what many New Agers tend to think. Human consciousness, or a God consciousness, or a Christ consciousness. You know, it's interesting. They never say that it's a Shiva consciousness, or something else, some non-Judeo-Christian God consciousness. But anyway, they say that some sort of consciousness is required to make anything happen because of the observer effect. That's not true. While I described the observer effect using an example of a person measuring a quantum mechanical system using a probe of some sort, the very act of one system interacting with another can act as a measurement. After all, you have to know the properties of something to know how you will be affected by it when you interact with it. Since there was more than one effective, quote-unquote, object moments after the Big Bang, they were all interacting with each other, and hence, perfectly satisfied this concept. There is no new news this episode, and I'm running a bit long, so there's no Q&A either. There is one piece of feedback, finally. Uh, Tom the writer of the Dealing with Creationism in Astronomy blog, wrote in about my ramble at the end of the last episode, about the fringe people being ignored by mainstream scientists because they don't play by the same rules. I stated that I thought that it was the Astronomy Cast podcast that had done an episode about it, but I couldn't locate the episode. Tom, on the other hand, knew right away that it was episode 147, the episode title being how to be taken seriously by scientists. And he had written a blog post about it, both of which I've linked to in the show notes. And with that said, it's time for The Puzzler, where I attempt each episode to attempt to ask an attempted critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. Last episode, the scenario was to explain what logical fallacy or fallacies best sum up this quote.
1: We we took... Um our books when they, when they first came out, and we sent them to a whole series of, of leading scientists and begged them pleaded with these people to get back to us and tell us where we had gone wrong. In other words, where were our numbers wrong? And um, the reaction has been absolutely nothing. And, and we feel sure that if somebody could take our book to pieces and say, look, you've invented this, or look, you've massaged this, or you've made this, that somebody would have done so by now. And, and the fact is, that our numbers are sound, and if the numbers are sound, then the strangeness of the moon is sound, and uh, we need some explanation.
0: Congratulations goes to Jan S. via email for being the first to send in a solution that works. Honorable mention, in order, goes to Richard K., Chu, and Paul from Los Angeles, California. That's Paul from Los Angeles, not Richard, Chu, and Paul, all from Los Angeles. Jan wrote, that he thinks it's a reverse argument from authority. Since no authority has discounted it, therefore the guy's right. Richard Kay agreed, saying that it was a mirror image of the argument from authority. Both Chu and Paul wrote in that it's a different logical fallacy, affirming the consequent. As Chu put it, the format is, If I'm right, no one will tell me I'm wrong. No one has told me I'm wrong, therefore I'm right. Paul pointed out that this is effectively the reversed argument from authority plus a non-sequitur that combined to make the affirming the consequent fallacy. I'd also add that at the end of the quote, the part about if the numbers are correct, then the strangest of the moon is correct, that's a non-sequitur. This episode, with the main segment on quantum mechanics, the puzzler, as I said, is going to be very, very loosely based upon that material. For lack of anything better... It's about the recipe that I gave. If I'm writing a recipe that calls for 1 part butter, 4 plus epsilon parts peanut butter, 8 minus epsilon parts powdered sugar, and 4 parts of semi-sweet chocolate, what am I making? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I will discuss it during the next episode, and no, it is not anything that I brought to Tam last year. With that in mind, the next episode will probably be about Jose Escamilla's film, Celestial, and the true color of the moon. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please, please send them in. You can tell that I'm stretching here. I do have an announcement for this episode, but I'm actually going to put it off to the next episode once there's an official announcement. So, with that in mind... Wraps up this topic for the 64th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Podcast, yes, podcast, yes, podcast. Yes. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little, or a little, at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please do use 1. The feedback form on the website, 2. Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Three, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. Four, leave a comment on the page or the blog post for this episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page of the podcast. Or six, send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and am perpetually behind in responding. If you do have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes, or your podcast, website, or service of choice. If you liked it, then you should tell your friends and family and two random people that you'll never meet in real life, so on the internet...